Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, shrimping and shrimp boat building have been important industries in St. Augustine for more than a century. It's a story, it's our hometown story. It was born, matured, and arguably is in its decline in our town. It involved all the old names, all the people that you get to know talking with St. Augustinians. And unlike a lot of other things that we know of in Florida history, it's uniquely Florida. We'll discuss the Institutional Archive of the Florida Historical Society. These artifacts, collectively known as an institutional archive, these represent a single entity, in this case, the Florida Historical Society. It's ups and downs within the context of other major historical events. And we'll hear about Criteria Studios in Miami, where some classic songs were recorded. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Here comes the shrimp boat to take me There's something distinctively Floridian about watching shrimp boats trawling our coastal waters, particularly in the northeastern part of the state. Maritime historian Brendan Burke is co-author of the book Shrimp Boat City, 100 Years of Catching Shrimp and Building Boats in St. Augustine, the nation's oldest port. The book is published by the St. Augustine Lighthouse and Museum. As Burke explains, the shrimping industry in Florida began in Fernandina Beach and St. Augustine. The shrimping industry got started like any great enterprise. It wasn't one person, one thing, really one place. Uh, it was a conspiracy of circumstance that a will named one person, Mike Salvador, kind of assembled. He was an architect. Uh, he was a fisherman. He was a mariner. Uh, he was an entrepreneur. And in Fernandina, in the first decade of the 20th century, he assembled what I would consider to be the greatest maritime chapter in Florida's state history. It spanned from about 1900 until the 1980s. It caused well more than a billion dollars worth of fishing tonnage to be built in this state. It impacted the lives of thousands of people, directly or indirectly, 23 countries worldwide, and started a foodway that we now know and all participate in uh, that in the, la in the previous century was unknown. The shrimping industry in Northeast Florida expanded and evolved quickly, with the emphasis gradually shifting from catching shrimp to building the boats to do it. St. Augustine uh, is a cousin in many ways to Fernandina, where we're cousins, uh, along with lots of other shrimping ports. St. Augustine has one of the oldest connections to commercial shrimping. It has also a, a deep connection to the building of shrimp vessels, shrimp fishing vessels, shrimp trawlers, we'll call them, uh, a really iconographic part of American fishing tradition. Uh, everybody has the concept of a shrimp trawler in their head. If you, if you grew up within 200 miles of the coast, you know what one looks like in the southeast. Uh, you know, we go to the beach and we see them offshore, but most people know so little about them. And they really help drive this region's economy in, the north, in northeast Florida uh, for so many years. And, you know, when fishing and boat building was down in some port towns, 
crime was up. And that's, that's something I've heard time and time again from people that lived through the heyday of commercial shrimping in this area. Families from diverse cultural backgrounds were part of the birth and growth of Florida's shrimping industry in the early to mid 20th century. Brendan Burke. That's where you have a really profound tale of the American dream being told writ large. You have African-American families that are getting into the enterprise in fish houses as labor on the boats and as owners of some of the boats. You have Greek immigrant families that are building boats, mostly in Fernandina and St. Augustine, but other places as well, Tarpon Springs. You have uh, Italian families, immigrant families, that are coming either directly from Italy or trans-migrating from uh, places up north like the Fulton Fish Market up in New York which was a critical part of the infrastructure to get rid of shrimp. You, you know, catching them is half the battle. You gotta sell them uh, for the enterprise. So you have all these families that move to the region, but they bring something with them. And each of those talents conspired to form the modern commercial shrimping business. By the 1940s and 50s, really post-war years, you have a boom in it because we have labor returning from the battlefields. We have the American production system that was at its highest point ever and probably in, in the country's history, able to produce wire, produce copper tubing, to produce diesel engines, all the stuff you need for a shrimp boat. And we have now know how to eat it, uh, how to eat shrimp. Shrimp were mostly an ethnic food prior to the 1920s, 30s, 40s. You, maybe you would have heard of a shrimp cocktail in the big cities, but if you're in Omaha or if you're in Des Moines or if you're in Topeka, uh, you probably didn't eat shrimp habitually. After the war, you had all these young men and women who traveled around the country, around the world. They'd gone to training camps like the Coast Guard facility in St. Augustine. They'd been in the Navy, and they had met other people and learned to do strange things like eat shrimp. So that changed. The war changed us in many ways, but it changed what we've put on our plates. And St. Augustine and a lot of other port towns started to supply that need, catching shrimp and then getting them out in the distribution networks that was the rail system, the tr transportation system that really blossomed because of interstate travel in the 50s and 60s. As the catching shrimp side of the industry faded in St. Augustine, boat building continued to thrive here into the late 20th century. So St. Augustine was a major port for catching shrimp really only at about the 1920s and 30s. There was a diaspora of fishing vessels that left St. Augustine in the 30s that went to Morgan City, Louisiana. They went all over the Gulf Coast. Uh, they went over to Fort Myers uh, to expand for lots of reasons. Number one, we, were neat, we had more demand for shrimp, and so we needed to find richer fishing grounds. So they went to the Bay of Campeche off Mexico. They went to, after the pink shrimp boom in the 1940s and 50s, uh, down off the dry Tortugas. But what stayed in St. Augustine, and this was really king for that area, was the ability to build the boats that supplied the fleets. And so between 1919 and 1985, I can account for about 3,500 boats that were built in town that went all over the place. And I mentioned 23 countries around the world we built boats for. We shipped them out almost by the dozen. They were rarely built on speculation. They were a well-known quantity. And during the heyday, Desco, diesel engine sales company, their motto was the sun never sets on a Desco boat. And that's a pretty bold statement to make but it's not bragging because it was true. And you know, it sounds a lot like the sun never sets on the British Empire, uh, but it was true. And it probably in some ways still is true today. And that's a legacy that Florida has left on global fishing and global foodways. 
A few decades after commercial shrimping declined in St. Augustine, it started to fade from American waters in general. The major decline in American fishing, shrimp fishing itself, really started in the late 1960s, early 70s. There was still a boom throughout the 1970s, for sure. I mean, there were more boats in the 1970s fishing American waters for shrimp than any other period before or since. But we had more imported shrimp coming in as well. The American demand for shrimp in some ways outgrew its ability to provide those levels of shrimp. Uh, that's arguable. Uh, but what is not arguable is that today, if you put 10 shrimp on a plate, only one of them will be wild-caught American shrimp. The other nine will be imported from aquaculture abroad, uh, some wild-caught abroad. Uh, and those aren't shrimp that, um, that necessarily have a history. When you eat local shrimp, you know the quality of them. They come from our oceans that we know the quality of. And when it comes from a foreign place, there's nothing wrong with foreign food. But if it's not produced in a place where the labor, you can vouch for that quality of labor and the environment, uh, it's not necessarily good food. And there's a dramatic difference in taste as well. Even though the shrimping industry has declined in St. Augustine in the later 20th and early 21st centuries, Burke says the shrimping culture does still exist. There are boats still fishing uh, right now. Uh, the fleet is probably down to about a tenth of its height during the 1970s. You know, St. Augustine now has six or seven shrimp boats, not many in comparison to the, the old days where you could walk across the San Sebastian River on boats, just hopping from rail to rail, you know, and people used to talk about playing on boats as a kid and crossing the river on boats. Uh, boats jockeying to find a place to tie up. They had trouble, you know, with parking, in essence, on the San Sebastian River. Uh, those days are gone, the fish houses are gone. They were never meant to last, uh, but the industry is, and that is going away, and it's something that uh, it's critical that we remember, number one, who it was and what it was, but also try to support our local fisheries in sustaining who they are. In addition to publishing the book Shrimp Boat City, the St. Augustine Lighthouse and Museum has an exhibit on the local shrimping industry. There is. We have an exhibit at the St. Augustine Lighthouse and Maritime Museum. It's in the Keeper's House. It's one of our many exhibits, and it focuses on the early days and the growth of modern American shrimping and boat building in St. Augustine, Florida. Uh, it's a story. It's our hometown story. It was born, matured, and arguably is in its decline in our town. It involved all the old names, all the people that you get to know uh, talking with St. Augustinians. Uh, and unlike a lot of other things that we know of in Florida history, it's uniquely Florida. While the shrimping industry has probably peaked in St. Augustine, Brendan Burke is hopeful that it will never completely go away. If I say it's gonna die out in St. Augustine, they won't let me back in the city gates. Uh, I certainly hope it won't. Uh, we need to see, for the health of our community, we need to see commercial fishing vessels going in and out of the inlet. They never have stopped doing that since 1565. Uh, that's been part of our culture, that's been part of Florida. Uh, you know, we're a big peninsula. Uh, we need to have and maintain our relationship with the sea as a healthy one. And so reinvesting in commercial fisheries with the technology, advancements uh, that we can make to keep that fishery going forward is going to be important not just for commercial fishing, but our investment with the sea. Maritime historian Brendan Burke and Ed Long are co-authors of the book Shrimp Boat City, 100 Years of Catching Shrimp and Building Boats in St. Augustine, the nation's oldest port. Here come the shrimp boat for to take me to Lucy.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org, where you can shop for great books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, and watch episodes of our public television series, Florida Frontiers. While you're there, you can subscribe to our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. Remembering people, places, and events of the past is what archives are all about. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, the Florida Historical Society has been collecting and preserving documents and artifacts for well over 150 years, right? Yeah, that's right, Ben. So the Florida Historical Society started in 1856 and was formally reorganized and incorporated later in 1905. And it was from that point that FHS began collecting and really building a comprehensive research library related to Florida's history. But back in 1856, it was under the name Historical Society of Florida. And one of the founding members and really one of the key people was a guy named George Fairbanks, who became a noted Florida historian. The first president was a guy named Benjamin A. Putnam, who Putnam County is actually named after. Um, And there were a lot of early, very prominent Floridians, including seven past, present, and future governors who were original members. And that included Richard Keith Call, James Broom, William Mosley, as well as several others. And in an introductory lecture given in St. Augustine in 1857, George Fairbanks stated that the society's mission was in part to, quote, keep and preserve all that is known in trust for those who come after us, unquote. Unfortunately, however, in 1861, the Civil War ended all proceedings, and there was such disruption in society that the Florida Historical Society, or as it was known, the Historical Society of Florida, kind of went into hibernation until 1905 when it was formally reincorporated. However, a lot of the early membership, including Fairbanks, continued to actively collect documents, books, and eventually donated those to the library in the 20th century. There was, however, a point in 1879 when, at the behest of Fairbanks, the state legislature passed an act creating a state historical society to carry out those duties. Unfortunately, though, the members did not meet within the 30-day period that they were required to, so unfortunately the act was just dissolved and nothing was formalized until 1900 when there was, again, another renewed effort by Fairbanks, this time in Jacksonville, to garner some support, and eventually he did get some prominent Floridians and folks who were interested really just in the preservation of the state's history to form the society, and they drafted this charter. We're looking at the original charter right here from 1905. And the Jacksonville Public Library gave them a tiny little room inside of their new library that was built just right before incorporation of the society, where they began depositing some of these books and materials. Ben, there were some very recognizable names who were members of the Florida Historical Society over the years, right? Yeah, so if we look at a lot of these membership cards, as I mentioned earlier, there were former governors and state legislators and folks like that. But we also see people like these noted authors, Theodore Pratt. He's the, the gentleman who wrote The Barefoot Mailman. Also the Pulitzer Prize winning author Marjorie Kinnon Rawlings, who wrote The Yearling. 
Here's a card for Charles O. Andrews, who was a U.S. senator at the time in the mid-20th century. Henry Flagler, the founder of the Florida East Coast Railroad and Hotel Company, was a member. We have his 1907 membership card. Here's Baron Collier Jr., whose father created Collier County. Nathan Mayo, this was the state's longest-serving commissioner of agriculture. He was a member for several decades. But it really wasn't until you had folks like Julian and P.K. Young, along with others, Dorothy Dodd, Jeanette Thurber Connor, John B. Stetson, These were professional academics and historians that started to move the organization away from a group that was simply just collecting and storing old things for the sake of having old things and really turned this organization into a professional research facility. So as the profession of history is evolving, so too is the mission of the society away from what we'd call this antiquarian society to a more professionalized historical organization. They were forming annual meetings. Here we have actually a plea from the city of Miami's Chamber of Commerce for the society to hold their 1952 meeting in the city of Miami. And they were trying to attract historians to the field of specifically Florida history to try and move the society sort of in line with newer historiographical trends that were really emerging in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So why is it important for the Florida Historical Society or any organization to maintain an institutional archive? Yeah, these artifacts, as you said, collectively known as an institutional archive or an internal repository or even a corporate archive, these represent a single entity, in this case, the Florida Historical Society, its ups and downs within the context of other major historical events. So, for example, we can look at the period of the Great Depression, and through these records of the Florida Historical Society, we can understand how these major events shaped decision-making at the individual level, but also at the organizational level, and how records from that time period were being kept. So some of these records are from the Federal Writers Project, which was a New Deal program. A lot of FHS members and historians, former librarians, worked for the program. So we have all of these great correspondence records talking about what was happening, the snapshot of what was going on in Florida during the Great Depression through the eyes of this organization. And you see here again in the documents an evolution of historiography in the types of materials that were being collected. You know, mediation is a process that is really at the forefront of the archival science. So early on, the society was focused on the great man histories, you know, and and they ignored the roles of people of color, of immigrants, and their impact on the state's history. That changed in the second half of the 20th century as FHS expanded its collections, research prerogatives, and publications to try and tell everyone's story. And that continues today. So in terms of the actual size, it started rather small, as I said, in a tiny little room in Jacksonville. And now the collection fills an entire decommissioned post office building. So in 47, there was a report that said FHS had about 3,000 volumes, 1,500 individual documents, and about 1,000 other things listed as ephemera. Today, those numbers have grown substantially to over 10,000 volumes, just as many documents, 2,000 maps, 3,000 artifacts, 17,000 postcards, and much, much more. Today, the big challenge for an archivist is capturing what we call born digital material, so stuff that is created digitally. It still has to be an important part of this long history of the organization's records. Another important reason for keeping good records of an organization's operations is the provenance of materials. So we receive hundreds of items every year on donation. They range from individual postcards to entire original photograph collections, family albums, rear Florida books, letters, manuscripts, you name it. Where these materials come from is really a key part of the archival process. So when doing historical analysis, 
process, how a document gets to where it is can be a very important part of the puzzle. And as I mentioned earlier, we were looking at this old accession book. Here's a copy of Bartram's Travels from 1791. We know that this was donated by Charles Torrey Simpson, a noted Florida naturalist. An historian writing a biography on Simpson would be interested to know that provenance. It's part of that story. It's really all about context. So lastly, I would say anyone who has even a small business, it's good to be aware of what you're creating and keep a record of that change because eventually it will help tell the story of a particular place during a particular time. Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to see some of the Florida Historical Society collection we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Some of the best-loved songs of the late 20th century were recorded in Miami. Holly Baker has this look at Criteria Studios. Criteria Studios, an iconic recording studio in Miami, Florida, was founded in 1958 by musician Mac Emmerman. Since then, the studio has been the source of many hit songs. Jeff Nolan is an independent music and marketing consultant and the historian for Hard Rock International. He talked to me about Criteria Studios. I think with Criteria, a thing that I, I love about it is, you know, it is truly iconic and you can't overstate how important Criteria was and still is to the development of American popular music. It, it was an incubator for some of the generation defining sounds. In the 1970s, a long list of popular artists created legendary music in Criteria Studios including Fleetwood Mac's Rumors and the Eagles Hotel California. In November of 1970, Eric Clapton's group, Derek and the Dominoes, recorded their only studio album, Layla, at Criteria Studios. The song Layla from the album featured Eric Clapton's lead vocals and guitar, along with Dwayne Allman's lead and slide guitar. You know, if you look at Criteria and the amount of incredible and legendary music that was recorded there, Layla is certainly the one that jumps out and has the big story attached to it. You know, Clapton had that uh, sort of affinity for the area. And I mean, he even called an album 461 Ocean Boulevard, <laughs> which is just a house down the street. It's an extraordinary thing because it is so raw and heartfelt and real and incredibly well recorded, but unpolished. Criteria Studios was also at the forefront of the disco movement. The music group, the Bee Gees, were a fixture at Criteria in the 1970s, recording chart-topping songs like Stayin' Alive and How Deep Is Your Love in the studio. The Bee Gees, to me, are, even though they're, you know, Australian, I equate them to Miami for some reason. I, I just, they, they feel Miami-ish. 
but yeah, the Bee Gees recorded at Criteria a lot. Massive hits came out of there. They did the whole uh, Spirits Having Flown album out of there, which was their follow-up to Saturday Night Fever. And it was just, you know, one hit after another. I mean, those guys were and are so brilliant. And because of the success they had with this, you know, kind of goofy disco movie, they sometimes get pigeonholed as this sort of era band. But the Gibb brothers are truly like Beatles level brilliant writers, producers, and their uh, recorded output goes so, so much farther than just what they did for Saturday Night Fever or during the disco era. Uh, incredible, incredible band. And Criteria was a great fit for them. They got to work with a genius producer and they got to go to a great spot. Robin Gibb of the Bee Gees said that the rhythm of their 1975 song Jive Talkin', originally called Drive Talkin', was inspired by the sound made by their car tires as they drove over the Julia Tuttle Causeway on their way from their Miami Beach homes to Criteria Studios. Jeff Nolan explains, Criteria Studios was popular with musicians not just because of the sunny location or the state-of-the-art studio equipment. The main reason so many musicians flocked to Criteria Studios was because of recording engineer and producer Tom Dowd. Criteria, as great a studio as it is, the, the legacy and its place in history is just as much about one man, Tom Dowd. This is as brilliant a record producer as we've ever seen in the history of contemporary music. It, that's, that's just a fact. I mean, the guy did it all and was such a brilliant creative soul. Some, some folks don't know this about Tom. Before he became a legendary recording engineer, he was a physicist. And Tom himself worked on the Manhattan Project. He was one of the physicists that worked, you know, on developing atomic energy and, well, the A-bomb. And how somebody goes from that sort of academic pursuit and that really dry sort of numbers game to recording the Layla album and dealing with those guys back then, uh, I think is, is, is that, that's fascinating to me. And I think that Tom himself, his presence at Criteria was a huge part of why that studio was so successful. People wanted to come work with Tom just as much as they wanted to come record in that room. In 1999, the Hit Factory purchased Criteria Studios and reopened the studios under the name The Hit Factory Criteria Miami. In 2017, the studio once again returned to the original Criteria Studios name. Today, the studio is a music landmark that's still used by popular musicians. You know, one thing that I think is noteworthy about Criteria is just the fact that it's still open and it's still doing relevant, viable work in the 21st century. Yeah, but it's not even just this legacy music. I mean, Drake's recorded in there. Nicki Minaj worked out of there. A lot of these legendary temples of recording from back in the day are gone. The, the advent of easy, inexpensive digital recording killed so many of the big studios. Be able to continue putting out relevant music in, in the 21st century is amazing. It speaks to uh, you know, how truly important that place is. 
you have to change and you have to evolve the technology, the acoustic space, the way you're working. That's part of why Criteria is able to stay viable in the 21st century. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and find us on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.